I urge you, Dia, and I urge Saitaik to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose name are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learnt and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you've spoken to us most clearly in your son. We thank you for the joy that Paul had in his saviour and the joy that we can have in our saviour. So we ask, Lord, please, as we come to your word, that you give us listening ears and open hearts, that we might be shaped, transformed by your word to live for your glory all the days of our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope you found our time going through the book of Philippians really encouraging. It's an amazing book, isn't it? Going through it these past few weeks has really reminded me why it's one of my favorite books in the Bible, about how immeasurable is the joy that we have because of Jesus, the joy that is close at hand even under immense suffering. But in our passage, I don't know if you felt this, but it felt, to me it feels like we've hit a bit of a bump. See, so far, Paul has been beautifully weaving together commands and applications as he unpacks the goodness of the joy that we have in Jesus. But in chapter 4, it suddenly feels like we hit a bit of a bumpy, rocky road. See, as Paul often does at the end of his letters, he actually finishes up just with a straight-up list of short, punchy commands for God's people before he wraps up. Now, for some of you, you love this stuff. You love it when the Bible is clear, concise, punchy with how you should respond to the passage. No frills, please. You don't need any reasons. Just tell me what to do. I'm down the other end of the spectrum, and I imagine some of you are too, where one-sentence commands can feel quite vague to me or unclear. See, I start thinking about more difficult situations that might complicate how we apply God's Word to us. After all, how do I preach anything longer than a one-minute sermon where I just read out all the commands and say, go and do likewise? But I think there is a bit more going on here. Something that I think is really going to shape the way that I read these sorts of passages in the future, and I hope it does for you too, is that these lists of commands, these commands aren't actually as random as they might appear. They're actually profoundly connected to everything that has come before in the book, in this case, Philippians. And that's what I hope to do today. So I want to show you how these commands are given weight and they push us back to go and look at what Paul has said in Philippians. Now, there's a lot we can look at in this passage. There's five commands there, but we're just going to focus on two of them for the sake of time. But what, something I'd challenge you to do this week, each day of the week, choose one of these commands in this passage from chapter 4, verse 2 to 9, and go through and read the whole letter. It takes you about 10, 15 minutes. And see how the letter builds up to that particular command. 
Now, I'm not telling you you need to like go through and comb through every hair and every detail. Just read through and notice what's related to one of those commands. I promise you, I reckon new things are going to jump out at you each time as you read the book with each of these commands in mind. For now, though, let's just stick to two of them. First one we're going to think about is agreeing in the Lord from verse 2 to 3. So pick it up with me. If you've got your Bibles, keep them open. Chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Disagreements, particularly in a group, they can be really awkward, can't they? See, there's disagreements that aren't really a problem. Sometimes Caitlin and I will disagree about what we want to have for dinner or what we thought of that movie that we just watched. That sort of disagreement, it's no big deal. But there are other kinds of disagreements, aren't there? There's the two bosses at work who can't agree on where the company is headed and are constantly belittling each other because of it. There's that red button issue that your two uncles always fight about over Christmas lunch. There's that disagreement about which pastor you prefer to the point that a church can be split down the middle in two. These are awkward, aren't they? People who aren't even in the disagreement are walking around on eggshells because this disagreement actually affects the whole group. And that's what's going on here. See, it's so significant that Paul is calling it out in a public letter to the whole church and urging it to be dealt with. But I hope the other thing you also noticed is how personal this is for Paul. See, this isn't just him letting out a sigh because two kids can't get along. No, have a look at Paul's language in verse 3. He speaks of Euodia and Syntyche as women who have contended for the gospel by his side. These women have been fellow workers, partners with Paul in his ministry. It's likely that the church really looked up to these women as they served in church or potentially even beyond with Paul. So whatever this issue is, he doesn't tell us, but he does tell, urge them to agree. And whatever the scope of this argument Paul wants to make it clear that the motive for reconciliation is that they agree in the Lord. Did you catch that at the end of verse 2? Jesus is the reason that we work hard at resolving disagreements in church. And I think chapter 2 is going to help us a little bit more in seeing what this means. Remember we talked about looking back the rest of the book? That's what we're doing now. So turn back to chapter 2. I'm going to read it out. Verses 1 to 4. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection or mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's really hard to do in the midst of disagreement, isn't it? See, so often we want to protect our own interests, but instead what God is calling us to here is to consider the other person as more important than yourself and to seek their interests above your own. 
And this humility is fueled by the example of Jesus. He is both our motivation to reconcile as well as our example. So when, not if, when you find yourself disagreeing with someone in church, looking out for yourself is a poison. That's just going to make things worse. But looking to Jesus, looking for the sake of the other person, that is what's going to bring peace. Disagreements are going to happen in church, and though this is a really short passage, Paul gives us some really helpful points, I think, in dealing with conflict. First up, and I think this is really helpful for prideful Aussies to hear, sometimes we're going to need help. You can see that in the passage. Paul asks his true partner to help these women with their disagreement. I wonder if maybe this true partner could be Epaphroditus, who likely brought the letter to them. In the intensity of a blown-out disagreement, sometimes it's really helpful to have a third party, a mediator who can help to diffuse tension and address the problem in an actual helpful and real way. So can I encourage you, if that's a situation for you, chat to some of the staff or some of the older members here that you trust. and They could really help out in helping with these disagreements. Secondly, remember who the other person is. See, if the two people who are disagreeing are both believers, then they are both people whose names are written in the book of life. Did you catch how Paul described the people he knew like that? People whose names are written in the book of life. Friends, you are partners, brothers and sisters, partakers of the very same gospel. This is what stops us from demeaning or belittling each other. Friends, remember how precious they are in the sight of God. Remember that the Spirit dwells in them just as much as in you. Because God can work in both of you, hard as it may be, to agree in the Lord. And when you're together with Jesus in glory, just imagine how trivial those disagreements are going to seem in the presence of the glorious Savior, what issue could possibly stand? What a wonderful day that's going to be. Our second command we're going to have a look at in this passage is to fix our minds on Jesus. It's going to be in verse 8. In this list of commands, Paul actually finishes up with two smaller lists, one about the ways we think and the other about the ways we should act. Why? Because God cares both about how we think and about how we behave. They go hand in hand. For the sake of time, we're just going to jump into the first one. So read verse 8 with me. Grab your Bibles. Chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Here's a list within a list. You thought I struggled with single sentence commands. But two questions that really help me think through this passage. I think these can be helpful generally as we read the Bible. First off, what is it not saying? See, I don't think this is just saying to think positive or think nice things like you might find in some self-help book you picked up on sale. No, there's something a little more complex and far more profound and beautiful going on here. And the reason I think that is because of this second question. How does it fit in with the rest of the book? That's what we were talking about in the beginning, wasn't it? We can look back through the book of Philippians 
to see Paul's way of thinking and figure out what this means. And when we do that, we don't see a Paul who simply avoids thinking about negative things. You might remember chapter 1, where some preachers were trying to cause trouble for him while he was in prison. Or chapter 2, where he was so overwhelmed with sorrow because he thought Epaphroditus was on the verge of death. Or chapter 3, where he shares his tears over those who have rejected God and faced the justice of hell. But despite these difficulties, incredibly immense as they are, he doesn't let evil have the last word. Because throughout this book, we've been seeing the joy that comes from being in Christ. Joy that helped Paul to not remain overwhelmed by the evil of the world. But also, this isn't Paul minimizing or dismissing evil, but showing that Jesus is so supremely valuable that it far eclipses any evil that we could come across in this world. It's incredible, isn't it? After all, where is the greatest truth, the greatest honor, justice, purity, love, excellence, praiseworthiness found, if not in the gospel of Jesus? As we think about how we, this might look practically, um, I thought I'd share a bit about how this passage has challenged me recently. See, this last six months or so has been a season for me where I felt especially confronted by my own sin, but also seeing the immense amount of sin in the world. Moments where I spoke really biting words in a second of anger. Moments where I acted selfishly in my tiredness and ignored someone or tried to wrap up a conversation quickly because I just didn't want to talk at the time. Looking out into our world, hearing about the horrific things that are happening and being carried out on vulnerable people because of war. Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, take your pick. Seeing the vitriol and dehumanizing language that people use with each other just because they disagree. More and more it feels like our culture is very slow to listen and very quick to hurl insults and abuse. The thing that tipped me off that this is starting to become a bit of a problem is that I was going a few nights a week with bad sleep, lying in bed late or waking up after and not falling back asleep because my mind, my prayers were so wrapped up in these things. But in God's providence, we've come to a series in the book of Philippians. Chatting through with Caitlin and with another friend of mine really helped me realize that this idea that we come to in verse 8 really helps to reveal some of the, at least part of the problem that I was having. See, my mind was fixated so much on these things that it wasn't letting the Savior shine through. The Savior who brings unfathomable good even out of horrific evil. This didn't mean that I just suddenly stopped thinking about sin, but it meant that after I did, I made sure to remember and see the goodness of Jesus and his work in me and in the world. See, even though my sin is deep and great, what is true is the compassion and beauty of the Jesus who took on flesh and let that flesh be torn to shreds so that I could be forgiven. Even though war rages, what is just and what is honorable is that God will bring about justice on those who do evil and that he is caring for survivors through his people as they show compassion and care for people displaced from these wars. Thousands of people are hearing and responding to the gospel for the first time 
And even though image bearers are hurling insults at each other, what is excellent and praiseworthy is the care and the pastoral thoughtfulness that I see in my college cohort for the people that they lead as they're being trained for a ministry. I can't wait to see how God is going to use them over the coming decades. Brothers and sisters, think about these things. Think about the glory of our Lord Jesus that shines and overwhelms the very evil that tries to overtake our minds. Well, the second way I want to encourage you to put this into practice is to read a good Christian book over the break. See, it can be easy to take a break from our relationship with God as we get busy with celebrations and going on trips. I've already found I've struggled with that after finishing up college a few weeks back. Maybe something you could do to keep your mind fixed on the goodness of Jesus is to read a book that draws you into the Bible. Here's a few suggestions from me. I've been rediscovering J.I. Packer recently. His books are phenomenal and really help me to love Jesus more. If you haven't read Knowing God, can I urge you to bump it up on your reading list? One of the staff workers at college thinks this is the most significant Christian book written in the last 100 years. Secondly, maybe you want to do a bit more thinking on and have a bit more guidance in how we think about conflict in church. The Peacemaker is a really good book, if that's the case. I had a read of a few chapters of this for an assignment this year, and it was really good. I really want to go back and finish it off because it was really helpful. And it's an easier read too. Lastly, maybe you've been puzzling as you read through this passage. Chapter 4, verse 6 says some stuff about worry and anxiety. I haven't read it, but Caitlin really recommends that last book, When the Noise Won't Stop by Paul Grimmins. Paul Grimmins one of the most pastorally thoughtful people that I've met in Sydney. And he'll really help you think through what the Bible says about anxiety. And as well, he takes time to wrestle with how clinical anxiety plays into this as well. Those are a few suggestions for you. I'm sure you could think of plenty others. But as we finish up, I want to draw us back to the heart of this book, the Philippians, which is what we named our series after and what we find in verse 4. Have a look at it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's so crucial. It's worth repeating. Rejoice. Friends, the Christian life isn't one where we just trudge along until we get to heaven. No, this joy is one that shapes our lives, not just when we see our Savior face to face, but also now. This is a joy that helps us. The joy we find in Jesus is what spurs us on to agree in the Lord and to seek reconciliation with one another. And the same joy is the one that we find in Jesus that spurs us on to fix our every thought on his goodness and mercy. So brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord because he is so, so good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your incredible goodness. Lord, as we see sin in ourselves in the world, Lord, may we see that the glory of your Son shines brilliantly even through that. It doesn't take away how evil it is, but it shows how great you are to work through it for good. So we ask, Lord, please, that you'd help us to fix our minds on you, to delight in you, to rejoice in you always, all the days of our lives. We ask, please, that you'd help us by your Holy Spirit to do just that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.